0: hello welcome to the Bible study tutor my name is Jessica Hutton and I am your Bible study tutor so today we're going to be covering Matthew 16 if you have actually been following along with 24 7 with the Bible study tutor you will notice that I fell off and I'm not gonna lie although I had been studying Matthew um, I felt overwhelmed with recording the videos and I fell behind because I was actually writing my notes in a physical notebook and then having to type them up and doing all the editing to make sure it made sense so I basically got frustrated and overwhelmed and I stopped and said I I thought for a moment that I wasn't going to do any more of these videos but through prayer and reflecting on why I started I decided to go ahead and persevere and so we're going to continue It's not 24-7 anymore because of what I missed like two weeks, but we're going to continue and go from here. There's something that I failed to point out regarding the significance of Jesus feeding the 4,000 in my video on Matthew 14 and 15. And it's just because I simply didn't recognize it. I took it for granted. So here's the explanation. In Matthew 14, Jesus fed the 5,000, which consisted of Jews. The disciples collected 12 baskets full of leftovers. Now many scholars think the 12 baskets signify the 12 tribes of Israel and demonstrate the disciples that are now referred to as apostles in the gospel, their significant role in the kingdom. In chapter 15, Jesus fed the 4,000. Now various textual clues seem to indicate that the people Jesus miraculously fed in that account are Gentiles. So after the people ate and were satisfied, the apostles collected seven baskets of leftover bread. Seven represents completion or fullness in scripture. That the apostles collected seven basketfuls seems to indicate that Jesus' ministry would be complete with Jews and Gentiles being invited into the kingdom of heaven. Another important thing to notice is that when Jesus prayed and broke the bread, he gave his disciples to give to the people. Jesus was illustrating how the disciples would minister to the Jews and the Gentiles per Christ leading. Ephesians 4:11 through 13 explains that Christ himself appointed some to be apostles, pastor, teachers, evangelists, and prophets to equip people to serve and build up the body of Christ. An apostle is an individual who functions as an authorized agent of Christ whom Jesus has hand selected to represent his authority and speak and act on his behalf. The 12 apostles Jesus appointed would preach the same message as him and do miraculous signs, which he enabled them to do, which would validate their message. Thus, it is likely that Jesus distributed bread to the disciples to give to the people to indicate that he had selected them for a particular purpose and they would minister then to the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, the chapter we're covering today, Matthew 16, begins with the Pharisees and Sadducees approaching Jesus, seeking to test him by demanding a sign from heaven. Now, generally speaking, when Matthew refers to the scribes and Pharisees together, or as in this case, the Pharisees and Sadducees, he is showing us that they represent the religious leaders. However, their roles in the community are significant and worth researching as you do your study of the text. Now, what's interesting about the Pharisees and Sadducees coming together in this narrative is they clashed in matters of religion and politics. Yet, when it came to opposing Jesus, they were more than willing to set their beef aside. Their willingness to set aside their beef to come for Jesus brings to mind, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They sought to demand a sign from Jesus that would be so extraordinary that they would have no doubt that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And Jesus response was a rebuke, highlighting their ability to interpret weather signs, but criticizing their inability to understand the sign of the time. He refers to them as an evil and adulterous generation for seeking a sign. And when God refers to people as adulterous in contexts like this, he is speaking about their unfaithfulness. So he then reiterated that they would receive no sign except the sign of Jonah, alluding to Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish and foreshadowing Jesus' death and resurrection. The narrative continues with Jesus warning his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now recall in Matthew 13, the kingdom parables, leaven is used positively to indicate the expansive nature of the kingdom of God. I mentioned that leaven is often used negatively in scripture and that is the case in this context so jesus used the metaphor of leaven to symbolize the pharisees and sadducees corrupting influence he wanted his disciples to avoid them so not as to be infected by their corrupting influence the disciples initially misunderstood jesus thinking that he was addressing their failure to bring bread However, after being rebuked by Jesus, they understood that he was referring to the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Evidently, even after witnessing the miracles of Christ many times, the disciples still had little faith, which is what Jesus rebuked them for. The narrative then shifts to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus asked his disciples about public opinions regarding the Son of Man. Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, declares Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus affirms Peter, revealing that this profound understanding was a revelation from God and not from man. Jesus then declared that upon this rock, he will build his church. Now, there are several interpretations of this passage that have caused heated debates among many religions, denominations, and scholars. The debate is based on what rock Jesus was referring to when he said he would build his church upon it. Now, Peter means rock, as does Cephas, which is the Aramaic rendering of his name. And Jesus uses the word Petra that also describes a rock or a stone. So technically, in the Greek, which I'm not going to say in Greek, of course, the sentence reads, You are Petros' rock, and upon this Petra, rock, I will build my church. I'm not exploring the details of the interpretation debates, but based on my extensive research, it seems the best interpretation is that Peter is a rock, as evidenced by serving as a foundational stone of the church. The church in this context refers to the new congregation of people who would believe in Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, as Peter did god himself that is christ is the builder of the church the cornerstone now peter definitely had a significant foundational role as the first member of the church a new fellowship of believers who would share his confession about who jesus is additionally thomas constable observes peter's prominence does not negate jesus as the foundation Rather, Peter is seen as the first among equals among the apostles with leadership roles not fundamentally different from others in the early church. Ephesians 2.20 suggests that the church's foundation is the apostles and prophets rather than Jesus. The constable argues that while apostles and prophets play a secondary foundational role, Jesus remains the chief cornerstone around which they provide support. So read 1 Corinthians 3. 10-11, 10-11, through 11, Ephesians 2.20, and 1 Peter 2.4-8 to dive deeper into the study on this topic. Afterwards, Jesus foretells his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. It aligns with Old Testament themes of the suffering servant and anticipates the ultimate victory over sin and death through resurrection. Peter, in his devotion to Jesus, attempts to dissuade him from such a fate, earning a stern rebuke from Jesus who identifies Satan's influence in Peter's words. Jesus exclaimed, get behind me, Satan, to demonstrate the gravity of opposing God's will, especially if in doing so, one tempts another person to do the same, thus being a hindrance or a stumbling block to them. Evidently, Peter did not understand that the Messiah had to be a suffering servant, as this would have contradicted the Jewish view of how the Messiah would be. This interaction demonstrates the stark difference between human understanding and God's purpose and sovereignty. It also implicates us to seek to be in alignment with God's will, even if it challenges our expectations of how things should be or how we think things should be. Continuing his thought, Jesus explained that anyone who follows him must deny themselves and take up their crosses as opposed to setting their minds on the things of man instead of God. Taking up one's cross would have been a graphic metaphor to the disciples. It symbolized forsaking one's own will for the will of God, no matter the cost. To value one's life over God's will is to lose everything, and losing everything and dying to oneself for God's sake is to gain true life in Christ. Jesus then informed them that he, the son of man, who has divine authority to judge all people, would come with his angels in the glory of his father and judge people for either denying themselves and taking up their crosses to follow him or choosing oneself. Each person, Jesus assures, will be repaid accordingly. Now about Matthew 17. After the six days since Jesus foretold his death and resurrection and informed the disciples that some of them would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, Jesus took his inner circle of Peter, James, and John to a high mountain to be alone. There, he was transfigured before them, that is, presented in his glorious and radiant state, as he likely had been before he became incarnate and would definitely be upon his resurrection. When Jesus was transfigured, Moses and Elijah appeared and talked with him. Now, Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. Their appearance with Jesus alluded to the fact that the scriptures found their fulfillment in Jesus. Remarking on the additional significance of Moses and Elijah, Thomas Constable writes, Moses was the model for the eschatological prophet whom God would raise up, specifically Messiah. See Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. Elijah was the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. And there you can see Malachi 4, 5, 6, and then cross-references Matthew 3, 1 through 3, 11, 7 through 10, and 17, 9 through 13, all of which with exception to Malachi addressed John the Baptist. Further, many scholars think that Moses and Elijah also represented the future state of people who live or die in Christ. Moses who died was in a glorious state as was Elijah who did not die. And so the case will be that whether one dies like Moses before Jesus return or yet lives like Elijah, they will enjoy life in Christ and live in a glorified state in eternity. Now, upon seeing Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus, Peter was overcome with awe and inquired about whether to set up three shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Apparently, the purpose of these shelters would have been to commemorate the event as the fulfillment of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles that looked backward to the wilderness wanderings and forward to the Messianic Age. And then the father stopped Peter, affirming Jesus a second time as his beloved son and instructing the disciples to listen to him. Terrified, naturally, the disciples fell on their faces. Then Jesus was left alone with them, told them to rise and have no fear. That the disciples were witnesses to this incredible encounter, affirmed everything that Jesus had revealed about himself. And it likely encouraged them after hearing about the suffering and death that Jesus would soon endure. The narrative continues with Jesus and his three disciples entering a crowd when a man came pleading for Jesus to help his son who had seizures and suffered terribly. His disciples couldn't help the boy and Jesus was aggravated by their little faith. He then cast the demon out of the child who was instantly healed. Jesus then explained that having faith like a mustard seed would enable the disciples to do seemingly impossible things like moving mountains. They were to trust and depend on Jesus completely. In Matthew verses 22 and 23, Jesus foretold his death and resurrection again. He revealed that he would be betrayed, then killed, and that he would be raised on the third day. The disciples were distressed upon hearing that. Matthew then records an occasion where Jesus paid the temple tax for him and Peter. Peter was confronted with the question about whether his teacher, Jesus, paid the temple tax. He answered, yes. Then Jesus used a question to educate Peter about the situation. Now apparently all Jewish men who were 20 years and older were required to pay the temple tax. Jesus explained that the sons of kings do not have to pay taxes or said another way, kings tax citizens but not their own family. Now if the temple is in view, then God is the king, thus Jesus would be exempt from paying the tax as would his followers one of which is Peter. However, to avoid problems offending the people and otherwise being a snare to them, which I think was primarily important, Jesus instructed Peter to go fishing and told him that the first fish he caught would have enough money for Peter to pay the tax for them both. And that's Matthew 17.